Greetings again, everyone. When I was first converted, I had read a booklet on baptism, and I went to my dad and asked him if it was possible for me to be baptized. And I well remember that moment, uh, my father's reaction and what happened when I went into what used to be a goldfish pond on the campus at Ambassador College and was baptized. In those days, I really couldn't wait to get home to get to my Bible and my favorite chair with a red pencil that I had and begin to mark scriptures and look up references and just drink in and study the Bible. Well, you know, I began to realize that the world had betrayed me and that much of what I had seen around me in society, especially in the Navy and all the way through high school, was completely pagan and satanic and of this world and on and on the descriptive uh, adjectives went. I began to investigate the origin of such things as church steeples and wedding rings, and I became somewhat zealous, one might even say fanatic. I became very concerned about keeping the Sabbath, since that was one of the first major things that I began to realize really was right. It wasn't just because my father, who was my dad, had said so, and I had grown up rejecting his religion and ran away to join the Navy, as I've said, to get out from under authority and uh, then finally began to come to some truth and some understanding much later in life. And the Sabbath became very, very important to me, and I began to really wonder about some of those statements in the Old Testament about the Israelites who went out to gather sticks to kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. Well, in the ensuing months and years, doctrine was really being formulated in the Worldwide Church of God by many of the pioneer students who came there, like Herman Hay and Rod Meredith and my brother Richard David Armstrong and Raymond Cole, myself and many others who came along to help my father in that fledgling work that began at Ambassador College in the mid-1950s. How many Bible studies were there when I would hear people asking questions about whether it is right or it is wrong to do thus and such? I'll give you a couple of examples of how that devolved down to us. We used to go up to help pastor after I was ordained in 1955, the church up in Fresno, California. And the routine was to always get up early in the morning and prepare for the Sabbath day by eating either a very light breakfast, because we weren't quite sure whether we ought to prepare a very large breakfast, and surely for several months or years, I forget how long it took me to resolve the difficulty in my mind, I was very sure that to make hot cakes on the Sabbath would be a lot of work and shouldn't be done. But in those Bible studies, people would bring, bring up the question, well, what about the man down at the electric department? Now, if we're not to kindle a fire, therefore we're not to burn any energy, we're not to go to the trouble to turn on a stove or to light a, a fireplace in an old-fashioned uh, home of some kind and cook it over a wood fire, what about the other person that we are causing to go to work on the Sabbath day? You would not believe the hours and hours of explanations that I have heard over the years. People back east had coal. Well, what if the coal was mined on the Sabbath day? What if it was trucked? to the processing plant on the Sabbath day? What if they processed it on the Sabbath day? What if they happened to dump it out in the alley on the Sabbath day? You wouldn't shovel it in until Sunday, and you wouldn't put it in your, your furnace or something until maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, and you wouldn't burn it to light a fire to cook your roast on a Friday so you could have the fires out by Friday sunset, and you would eat a roast that evening and then maybe get up on the morning and eat leftovers. But we did really believe in those days that it was wrong a word I will refer to time again in this sermon, because it was always, is it right or is it wrong? So we believed it was wrong to eat in a restaurant, because you caused those servants to work, and they were breaking God's law, and they were coming under the sentence of death. 
They were just the same as a bunch of stranglers and murderers of grandmothers. They were in there like perverts, thieves, crooks, robbers, and arsonists working on the Sabbath day. And if we patronized their place, and we actually paid money, and that was another thing that we knew was wrong in those days, the concept that you actually bought something on the Sabbath, no matter what it was, if you reached in your pocket and took out money and gave it to someone on the Sabbath day, it was adjudged by some of those early zealous students who believed with all their hearts in obeying God, in obeying the principles of the laws of God, in being a member of God's true church, of being obedient to the commands to obey the Sabbath. They were zealous, they were honest, they were hardworking, they were converted, they were sincere, they were believing, trusting, maybe a little naive, but really had all the very best motives. And they certainly believed it would be wrong to eat in a restaurant. So it's an interesting metamorphosis of how this all came about. But in those early years when we would drive up to Fresno, we, we got around the necessity of the, uh, you know, to avoid the Sabbath day's journey, which is really a very short little jaunt in your own neighborhood. The Sabbath day's journey in Jerusalem would have been not too many city blocks. But because we were a Levite in the ministry, and because we could see that Jesus Christ said it's all right to pull an ox out of a ditch or it's all right to do good on the Sabbath day, then certainly it was all right for a minister to go pastor a church, even if it was 250 miles away, and therefore requiring about a four-hour automobile trip. But to show you the anomalies, here we would get up early in the morning and embark on a four, four-and-a-half-hour automobile drive, which is, to be honest, a little bit tiring. Wouldn't you say so? It is to me. At least after four hours, my back is hurting. I'm tired of looking. I've got the white line fever and all of that. I'm really tired of it. I've been sitting in there. Well, we would go to the park when we got to Fresno, and we would unlimber our big bucket of stew. At length, after some months of this, of rotating with Rod Meredith and Herman Hay and my brother Dick and other people, somebody made a discovery. In the park in Fresno... Down on the leg of one of the tables in the picnic area, there was an electric plug-in. And so we went there, and we had one of these electric stew pots. And we could go up there and plug it in and actually heat our stew. It was a real revolution in our Sabbath day lunch. We could go to Fresno and have hot stew. And no one even blinked. We had subtly somehow gotten around some of these difficulties. But let me tell you, there was quite a little minuet tippy-toeing around over the difficulties and a lot of hours of, of thought and of prayer, perhaps even fasting and prayer, and a lot of sweat trickling in rivulets down a lot of ministers' backs when they would be asked embarrassing questions on a Friday night study. And in those days, it was asked orally. A person would rise to his feet. Well, what about this? The minister is sort of under the gun and on the spot. They've got to come up with a judgment or an answer right then and there. And, of course, in all things, at all moments, at all times, in every way, we knew that the ministers had all the answers to anything you wanted to know. It didn't matter whether you were talking about whether it's right to graft a peach into a pear tree or a pear, you can't do that maybe, but to an apricot tree or whatever, or whether or not beer should be poured down the sink during the days of my leaven breath. The ministers had the answers. I want you to turn to a scripture where Jesus is dealing with some of the Pharisees during his day back in the, the uh, book of Matthew, chapter 23. We're very familiar with this chapter. It is the one where Jesus begins to rebuke the Pharisees for all of their problems and all the things that are wrong with them. 
But I want to read up to that because beginning in verse 15 is where he handled two of the sects of his days, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, one after the other. They came with their very cleverest arguments. Gives you some insights about them. Verse 15 of chapter 22, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might tangle him in his talk. Now, wait a minute. Is that really something that ministers... You have to think of them really, in a sense, as ministers of a church because the Pharisees' words, we're going to see, the legal inheritors, or you might say the, the appointees of the Mosaic religion. Jesus said, as we shall see, that they sat in Moses' seat. They weren't really, in the sense that we look at it today, ministers of a church. They were more of a priestly caste that had grown out of a lot of revisions of the original Levitical priesthood following the Persian or the Babylonian captivity and the return of the people to the land. And during the days of the Maccabees, and probably in about the 400s and on down from that time, B.C., there was a gradual emergence of a priestly caste that were called the separatists or the called-out ones because the name Pharisee merely meant one who is separate or different a unique individual who is of a different caste and therefore separate from the general society. That's all Pharisee really meant. There was nothing ominous or evil in the manner in which the Pharisaical religion began to develop. There's a fascinating article I want to quote from quite liberally today to show you some of the background of the Pharisee religion out of Kiddo's Bible Cyclopedia. But it's interesting if you ask could this have been a religious group of people? No matter how evil they thought this upstart preacher named Jesus was, what are they doing in their private quarters as a priestly caste, supposedly exemplifying all of the finest qualities of the Mosaic religion, taking counsel openly, orally, unabashedly, how they might tangle him in his talk? Could you do that in good conscience? could say Larry and Ron and Vance and I and Ian and Benny and a bunch of us get together and say, now let's run up to Big Sandy and let's have a meeting with Les McCullough and Burke McNair and let's, you say, Vance, this, and then Larry will come in with that and then I'll ask him this question and then Ron will hit him with a killer, see? And we'll just tangle him in his talk. Now, could we in good conscience go back to my office and be sitting here sharing all the methods of how we are going to trap someone by this subterfuge in his talk and live with ourselves unless we are cynics, unless we've already gotten to the place that conscience no longer bothers us, that the end is always justified. Whatever means we use to arrive at whatever end we feel we must arrive at because we are the only righteous ones, right? We're the only separate group. We are the only holy people. We know that about ourselves. We're Pharisees. So anything we do is justified because they're wrong and we're right. So where's conscience in all of this? Well, so after they had, they, however long it took, and you know the way some of these Jews can argue, it might have taken ten hours to come up with this, they sent out to him their disciples with a Herodian saying, Master, we know that you are true. Now that was a lie. They said, we know that thou art true. That was a lie. They didn't know that at all. They didn't believe it. But they thought that's a good way to start to trap him. We'll, we'll make, him a, you know, make him think that we're, we're really for him. We believe that you're true. And teach the way of God in truth. Every bit of it a lie. They didn't believe that at all. Neither care you for any man. Now, they didn't mean it the way that sounds. Meaning, you aren't afraid of anyone. You are not 
beholden to anyone. You are not uh, in some way intimidated or threatened. You're not blackmailed. You don't owe anybody anything. You regard not the person of man, meaning neither the king, or Herod, or the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, or any of the lowliest people in the street. Tell us, therefore, in the view of all of this, what do you think? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, you're familiar with this. It's a very famous passage of Scripture. Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you tempt me, you hypocrites? You know, I rarely in my ministry have had an opportunity to look somebody in the eye and to say, You hypocrite. I don't know, really, as I think about it, that I've ever done that in my life. I may have used other terms, like somebody is either off their rocker or they're crazy or whatever, but uh, maybe an uncomplimentary term to somebody who came and told me that uh, he was Jesus Christ, and I didn't believe him because he had a single uh, Windsor knot. Uh, well, never mind. But anyway, there, there he was, and I knew he wasn't Christ. But I've had people tell me all kinds of crazy things. But I've never called one of them a hypocrite. But if and when I do, what am I going to reap as a harvest of criticism? When do I ever have an opportunity to obey the Scripture that says, Answer a fool according to his folly? Well, sometimes I have to do that, more often than you might suppose. So he said, Show me the tribute money. And they brought to him a penny. Well, denarius, it really was in the Greek language. And he said unto them, Whose image and superscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things, things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So he really shut them up, and that was the end of that argument. They had nothing left to say, and on they went. Uniquely, maybe just by coincidence, they certainly could not have been conspiring together, came to him the Sadducees. So both of these leading sects, the Sadducees were the priestly caste that really had charge of the temple and were in the minority, but they came on the same day. And the Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection. And they asked him, and they said, Master, and this was their favorite question to put to the Pharisees. No Pharisee could answer the question because the Pharisees were uh, casuists who believed in assigning right or wrong to every nuance of human behavior. So, they would always tie a Pharisee in knots with this question. Master, Moses said if a man die, and never had any kids, and his brother marries his wife, according to the law, of course, and shall raise up seed to his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. And the first, when he married a wife, died, and he had no, no children. So his brother married his wife. So the second died, then the third, all the way to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, inferring then that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are yet going to live. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus' answers struck right at the heart of Pharisaical religion. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, it means, your soul, your psyche, 
and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The first four of the Ten Commandments are summarized in that part of the great commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So immediately Jesus put all of religion on a personal level of personal interaction between a person and his God and between a person and another person. He deinstitutionalized religion. He said, you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. There was no institution involved in this. There was no vertical structure or hierarchy. There was no obligation to some other organization of some sort. And he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, a little later on in the 23rd chapter, he began to speak to the multitude, and he said in verse 2, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not you after their works, for they say and they do not. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Now, I won't read all the 23rd chapter because I may refer to it from time to time as I give you some quotations out of Kiddo's Biblical Cyclopedia. But as I mentioned before, there were those back during that day that fancied they could answer every question that was brought to them about, is this wrong or is this right? And I've mentioned before how a man came to me, a full-grown man that was, a member, I think, a member of a large family that had his own business and wanted to know if it would be wrong for him to buy a red pickup. I told him I really thought he ought to make up his own mind, make his own decision on that. I remember when a minister was commanded to turn in his FAA pilot's license, and he did so because it was a judge by an alcoholic who ended up being my father's chauffeur and another man who was an emotional, distraught man who simply didn't know what he was talking about. That aircraft flight in all single-engine aircraft was very, very dangerous. One man went to my father and told him of a syndrome of some sort where a man, in just tempting the fates, will get in a single-engine aircraft, head straight to the west out over the Pacific Ocean, and just keep flying until he runs out of gas. That scared my father, frightened my dad, and he thought, mercy, we, we can't have that happening. And then I know that many other people began to realize that it's dangerous to fly around in single-engine aircraft, not knowing anything at all about the statistics that you're safer in such an airplane than you are in your automobile or a Greyhound bus or a train. But it was banned. Well, I remember so well in a ministerial conference, not that many years ago, frankly, it was probably in the early 1970s when my father had given me, as he said, the reins of the work and had turned things over to me, and he said that he was going to allow me to handle this decision involving pilot's licenses. And I remember with him right on the stage, I turned to the ministry and I said, I'll tell you what, I, and I said this tongue-in-cheek, I hereby delegate that responsibility to the FAA. Now, I say that just for the fun of it, bringing in a little bit of levity, because I thought that the FAA was perfectly capable of determining by their series of testing and by their uh, examiners and all that who was qualified and who was not qualified to fly an airplane. But when you have articles such as that that appeared in a Good News magazine as recently as about 1980 or 81, and I won't go into this because it would be very much in poor taste. I thought it was poor taste in the magazine. It would be in terrible taste for me to go into it in detail here. By a man who believed that it's cheating for you to eat a meal just before sunset, an hour or two or whatever, on atonement. 
because the Day of Atonement is the day upon which you ought to fast. And so they began to reason, well, if you enter atonement with food in your stomach, you're not really fasting. Well, what does it mean to fast? It means don't eat. It means don't eat from sunset of one day until sunset of the next day, and that's really all it means. It means just don't eat during that period of time. Well, in order to get oneself really ready for all of this, I will leave the rest of your imagination. This gentleman thought that it isn't only that you stop eating, but you just completely become cleansed of all foodstuffs in whatever way you can accomplish that feat. And so actually people have literally taken that as dogma or doctrine, and they have religiously affected or, or, or enacted that little righteous endeavor so as to righteously prepare to ease into the Day of Atonement in a very much more Christian fashion than those who might be sitting in their homes enjoying a pot roast at about 5 o'clock before sunset. Now, as I mention a few of these things that are of ancient historical worth, I think, to you about the Pharisaical religion, it may ring a bell here and there. First of all, do not assume that the Pharisees sprang into existence all at once, that, that one moment in time there were no Pharisees, and all of a sudden, there they were. It took millennia, if not decades, millennia. And do not believe either, on the other hand, that there were not very good people within the Pharisees' organization. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Gamaliel, with his wise caution, was a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul, as Saul, was a Pharisee, brought up according, as he said, to the strictest sect of the Pharisee, of which there were two. One was more strict than the other. They even had their own internecine difficulties because there was Hillel, as some of the others, that believed in more, uh, shall we say, libertine interpretations of the law, at least according to the Pharisaical doctrine. They were the liberals. So they had liberals and conservatives inside the Pharisaical religion. This is a very interesting statement out of Kiddo's article on Pharisees, page 513 of his Bible Cyclopedia, and I quote, it's quite wise, there is a tendency in all institutions to grow in process of time. Perhaps the tendency to grow corrupt is not less certain. In the rich and teeming soil of Persia, Hebraism could do no other than become rank. Accretions would also be made in those in great number. But every accretion would, of course, have the sanction which belonged to the primitive form. Whenever you adopt some new understanding, you need to justify it according to your traditional ancient roots and to give it the legality and the stamp of church tradition that goes back into antiquity. There never could be any corruption of religion did not each new opinion or practice contrive to get to its behalf the sanction of the old and recognized type. Corruptions do not come as corruptions. Accretions fasten themselves on to an ancient institution and are then defended as old, or they spring out of the body of the institution itself and then appear as a natural offshoot. Anyway, the old sanctions and perpetuates the new. Thus, the very soil in which Hebraism lay during the captivity was fitted to produce the philosophy of the Pharisee, which was essentially conservative, and, and aggregative or aggregative. It at all times and cases kept the old, howsoever abundant it became, and did not reject the new, provided its nature and tendency were to add and not to take away. Hence theirs was a system of positive beliefs, distinguished rather by its exuberance than by its purity, retentive of what was established, venerating past ages, 
decrying novelties, though having its very essence in novelties, and excluding all reform as hostile alike to God and man. Hyper-conservatism, and yet having many, many novelties in their own religious order. Josephus wrote this, and I'm just skipping along because there's a very large series of quotations from Josephus. Quote, and remember, Josephus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees are those who are esteemed most skillful in the exact inter interpretation of the laws. They ascribe all to fate and to God, and yet allow that to act what is right or the contrary is for the most part in the power of man. They say that all souls are incorruptible, but that the souls of good men only are removed into other bodies, and that the souls of bad men are subject to eternal punishment. Moreover, the Pharisees are friendly to one another and are for the exercise of concord and regard for the public. End of quote. Now, there are many other quotations by Josephus from wars and from uh, antiquities and other, other books. But now there's another source of the knowledge of the Pharisees. The books of the New Testament, I'm going to list from his book now 15 characteristics of the Pharisees and a few scriptures for each if you're interested in this at all. First of all, the high repute in which the Pharisees were held as expositors of the national laws, whether civil or religious, can be seen in John 7:48, as well as in Acts 22:3. In John 7:48, we'll turn to that briefly, you will see why they list this scripture, because obviously if you didn't believe as the Pharisees did believe, then you simply were not of a bona fide opinion. You simply were not valid. It, it, it was not uh, the end thing to believe. The officers and the chief priests, verse 45, came and said, Why have you not brought him? And the officers said, Well, never spake any man like this man. They'd been sent to the temple to arrest him. They didn't. They came up empty-handed. They came back shamefaced. And the officers said, Well, nobody ever talked like this man did. So the Pharisees said, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? Now think about that for a minute. If you were not of them, that was immediately disqualifying. The most disqualifying thing was not to be of their number because they were the only true group. They were the Pharisees. Now you see, Pharisee to you as a Christian over the many years when you're familiar with Jesus' statements, beware the leaven of the Pharisee, Pharisees are hypocrites, you think Pharisee hypocrite. You think Pharisee, generation of vipers. But Pharisee to them meant the called out ones, the separate ones, the unique ones, the ones who are elite as an elite caste. A Pharisee was a proud title, a spiritual title of an elite group who had the answers, who knew the truth, and who sat in Moses' seat and could tell you the answer to any question you would ask. It didn't matter what about growing fruit, Growing cattle, managing your business, making poverty, I should say pottery or poverty, be that as it may, or whatever you ask, they had the answers to that and to every conceivable question you could ask. So they said, none of the Pharisees believe on him, so that was automatically disqualifying. Now, the next point, number two, was what I said before, the casuistry, I believe is a way to pronounce that, which they employed in expounding the Scriptures. Now, that really means determining right from wrong. To a Pharisee, there was no such thing as a gray area. There was no such thing as personal volition, personal choice or decision. 
everything in the Talmud, and the Talmud, of course, is an outgrowth of that entire system, which defines such little things as it is not wrong to kill a flea on the Sabbath if the flea bites you first. Now, that's how tiny and picky unish it became. If the flea is crawling on you, you may not go to the trouble to squeeze the little beast between your thumbnails. That is, work must not be done. After he has some of your blood in him, you may pick him off and you may kill him, but only if he bites you first. And that's a fact. That's a Talmudic decision. That is this casuistry, or the, the excessive determination between right from wrong, where there are no gray shadows, there's no personal volition or personal judgmental decision that must be made. Everything is laid out for you. Everything is decided in advance. Some of the scriptures with regard to that, and you can see plenty of proof on it, is Matthew 9.34, Matthew 15.5, about the traditions of the fathers, uh, Matthew 23.16, which is right here in front of us, which says, Woe unto you, you blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Very fine distinction there. Do you have any idea how many weeks or even years, how many hundreds of hours it may have taken for them to argue until they came to that decision to where that was their doctrine. I'm not quite sure exactly what that symbolizes, but they, they do that. And I was there at the time when the man who later on became Pope uh, was uh, ordaining a group of novitiates into the priesthood, and there were probably about 120 of them or so, and it was quite a ceremony that we saw in Il Duomo at that time. So this excessive zeal in deciding what is right and what is wrong was a hallmark of the Pharisees. Now, also, they were very zealous in proselytism. Matthew 23, 15. Let's read that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of Gehenna than you yourselves. So when the Pharisees were successful in their very zealous efforts, and they were zealous, as zealous as two young Mormons, Natalie attired in black suits, snowy white ties, polished shoes, and a neat tie who will knock on your door and offer you literature. Not nearly, you know, so persistently as the Jehovah's Witnesses. It might be a pair of ladies or even a couple of older people and a teenager or whatever, but they also will do the same thing. And who in this room has not had their door, their doorbell rung or someone knocking at the door, and sooner or later a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or somebody else is going to be there proselyting, trying to distribute literature, trying to get you in a religious argument, a religious discussion, trying to talk you into joining their church, why their church is the right church, and so on. Now, the Pharisees had a tremendous program to go out and to make proselytes of people. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said they were utterly corrupt, and after they got this brand new, zealous, sincere, newly converted proselyte over a period of time that religion contrived to take that person who came in there innocent as a little babe wanting only all the right things wanting the truth wanting to obey God wanting to clean up their life wanting to repent wanting to be a better person and made them more corrupt than even the leadership interesting concept but that's what Jesus Christ your Savior said of this organization that was trying to kill him and finally did succeed in killing him made them twofold more a child of Gehenna, condemned to Gehenna fire, than the leadership was. Well, that was the third point about Pharisees. The fourth is, yet their concealment of light and hindrance of progress. And the same scripture says that. 
The next was their inordinate regard for externals and oppressive but self-sparing rule. I find that a fascinating statement written so many, many years ago by Kitho, way before the turn of the century, the middle 1800s, that they were known for their inordinate regard for externals. That has to do with clothing, with styles, with matters of personal taste and choice, and their oppressive but self-sparing rule. It meant oppression and very careful adherence to those rigid externals for the people, but don't worry about the Pharisees, the leaders themselves, because they were exempt from that rule. I want to cite a case when in a ministerial conference some years ago in the boardroom in Pasadena, I had for many years thought that the church was burdened unnecessarily with giving the ministers an annual allotment to go, an allocation check, quite large, to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. I also thought it was rather shameful in some of our large metal buildings to have a a huge area, probably half again as big as this whole room, of chairs over to one side, right up in the front, for the ministry. And I thought it was kind of silly to have gold stickers on the minister's cars and red and green and other kinds of stickers on the lay members' cars. And I thought it was kind of silly for all the ministers to have a special parking lot when only the duty minister, they might have had two or three that were there for counseling or anointing, it might make sense for them to come to an area. And the speaker, sure, I can see where he might want to park close enough to the back of the building where he could get there without having to walk a half mile. But for the rest of them, I really thought that the ministry ought to be sprinkled among the motels, hotels, resorts, and so on with the people. I thought it made more sense for the pastor of, say, Poughkeepsie to be in the motel where most of the Poughkeepsie people were going to be because he knew them and they knew him and he could help care for them and and help them in any way he could. I thought it made a lot more sense for the ministry to save enough money if they didn't feel, according to the dictates of the Bible, they had to save a full festival tithe. They ought to certainly save enough to get from the feast and back. And one minister just absolutely just axed that whole thing to my father. And, of course, all of them were a little bit squeamish, didn't like my proposal at all. I sounded like, you know, fingernails on blackboard, or I, I sounded like a very discordant tone bringing up, believe me, this suggestion in that boardroom. Mr. Dark may have been there. I've forgotten if he was there at this particular meeting or not. He may have still been in England. But in any event... I presented my, my case, and I thought it would save the work an awful lot of hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, worldwide, because we're talking about, really, many, many hundreds of families and huge bills for some of the most expensive places. Like when we went to Ozarks, the ministry got the best place, the Tantara, or whatever it was called, a lodge up there. A nice resort place, just a beautiful place. Lay members, stay out. This is the minister's place. You can't come in there. Well, I was trying to do away with that because of a scripture I read. The scripture is right here. Verse 5 and 6 of Matthew 23. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Well, I was axed because one pastor of a very large area and even of an overseas area said, well, i just got to tell you right now that according to the way uh, my budget is set up and so on, the way we live, if I had to save money to come to feast, I just couldn't come to feast. Well, that was the only argument needed because of the pomp and the power of the man who said it. So I was shot out of the saddle. 
Well, I have never noticed at a Feast of Tabernacles for the Church of God International a reserved section for the ministry. Now, maybe there has been, and I don't know about it. I got myself in hot water by making a statement up at Branson last year, and I had to repent of it about 30 seconds later, and I'm not sure that they learned that I repented. But I went up there, and I didn't know because we pulled up and parked and went on into this place where they're having a festival, and I was waxing eloquent about this business of stickers and about how it all began with Dean Blackwell saying that we want to know if you're going along the road that if you're in trouble, we see a car with a sticker on it, we're going to stop. Now, what's that say? That says if you see a car without a sticker on it, you're not going to stop. So the only people that you'd stop to help would be people with an identifying sticker because, see, we are the elite class. We are the special ones. And furthermore, we're a little secretive about our organization, so we're going to have a sticker and we've also got a secret handshake, haven't we? And a secret sign and all this sort of stuff to identify one another because it's fun. I used to play those games when I was a kid. We'd dig a hole in a yard and cover it up with sod and have a can on the wall. It was our treasury, about three cents in it. And we had a, a, a special name. We were a gang. We had a certain sign and, and we'd hold up our fingers in a weird way. And we had a way of identifying one another. Just raise goose flesh on you. So they had this all done. They had these stickers. Well, I was waxing eloquent about these dumb stickers. Little did I know that at this, uh, not Buck Owens, but anyway, it's a, uh, the place where we meet up there in Lake of the Ozarks is owned by one of these big country western stars. And they were scheduling that every afternoon for a country western show. So we only got to use it for a certain number of hours. And they were having parking lot difficulties because they needed to keep the forward parking lots open so that their people coming in there to that ticket kiosk could buy tickets for the show that afternoon. And if our people parked in that parking lot, that would really impede their, you know, show, their, their sales of tickets. So they issued stickers to identify our cars to put them out in the back where they wouldn't get in their way. And our enterprising people had just gotten on the, on the shtick there real quickly, and they had ordered these stickers and had gone around pasting stickers on everybody's car. And here was a box of stickers out there in the lobby, and I hadn't even seen it. And I'm up there just flailing away about these stickers, and I guess in the meantime, a deacon's out with a hop steam iron trying to get the stickers off all the bumpers in the parking lot. And I never did get a chance to apologize to those folks, but I guess they thought that I'd seen those stickers, and I was really getting on them about it, but I wasn't. I was completely innocent. I didn't really know that they even had stickers, and I told them, well, if that's a reason for them, then of course, by all means, go ahead and do it. This is interesting, though, when it says that they love greetings in the markets and to be called of man, Rabbi, Rabbi. But Jesus said, Be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, or teacher, a headmaster, like a teacher who is a master, even Christ, and you are all brethren. Interesting concept. Flew right in the face of Pharisaicalism. And call no man your father upon the earth. How does a Roman Catholic Church handle that scripture? I've never looked that one up in the Catholic Encyclopedia. I must do that. I know they've got a logical explanation. I know it's a beautiful explanation. It's probably going to be about, you know, four, five, six pages long. And it may have taken them a hundred years to, to figure it out as to how to explain that. But believe me, it is explained. I'll tell you that. And explained so if you were a Catholic, you would understand it. Now, for me, just being a dumb Protestant, I don't understand the Catholics calling a priest father because it tells me in the words of my Christ, Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. You know, even the college disobeyed that in, in one slight way, because in the field of academe, if you've ever been to a commencement ceremony at a very large institution, well, the people who are in the know know what those robes mean. If you're not in the know, you don't know. 
Some people don't even know the difference between whether the tassels are on one side or the other. But they've got robes, and those robes actually have stripes on them. They've got stripes on the shoulders, and they've got stripes on the sleeves. And it's like a forest striper in the Navy. You learn to identify who has a doctorate and who has a master's degree. See, I studied for my bachelor degree, my bachelor's degree, and then finally I got a master's degree. I have it in there in my desk. And then I got a doctor's degree. Now, to some people, that's important. I have never, never, never asked people, and never will, to call me doctor. I know one man who got a doctor's degree on somebody else's work, basically, but uh, I know several people who have doctor's degrees from an unaccredited institution, which is what mine's from. I tried my best to get it accredited, and it was accreditable. It should have been accredited, but now that I look back, maybe not. But it was accreditable at that time at any point, in any event. And, and because my degree is from an unaccredited institution, I'm simply not going to trade upon it. I don't go around and make reservations in hotels and motels, and I don't, I'm not called out where I live, doctor. Now, there are retired generals out there that are called general or colonel. That's fine. But when I got my master's degree, I didn't go around having people call me master. But it says that I have a degree of master. I'm wondering about that. Maybe I ought to do away with that one. It says here, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Wouldn't it be one of the most shocking things in the world if you ever went up to Big Sandy and you saw the minister standing at the door handing out songbooks and opening the door for widows? That would really be something to see. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Now, the sixth point was, and really it overlaps the one we've been talking about, their affectation of grandeur and distinction, Matthew 23, 5, and we just have read it, and subsequent verses. Grandeur and distinction. Status. You know, that is such a common thing in the military. It's so common that you would think, why is that rearing its head in religious organizations? Now, you know, anciently they claim that when knights jousted on the field of battle and they were in their full metal uniforms, that they had these visors. And so as they squared off and they lowered this huge staff on these big armored horses and they were roaring toward one another, the first thing they would do is reach up and take this visor and clank, you know, it would go into place over their eyes. And from this gradually evolved the military salute. I used to do that by the hours. I'd stand at the gate. Every time an officer would come through, I would snap him what I thought was my snappiest salute, wearing a white helmet and a white belt with a 45 with a white holster and white leggings. And I'm checking the stickers of the, the, you know, all the officers that are coming through the gate. And I'm, I'm just waving the, the, ens, the ensigns through and they don't like it. But anyway, no, midshipmen. I, I would salute the ensign, but the midshipmen I'd wave through, and they didn't like it. But it was amazing. I learned this in the Navy. I, I could see the fear that a whole lot of scrambled eggs and gold braid, which, of course, you can go down to the Army-Navy store and buy one of those hats if you want to. Uh, but anyway, if somebody wore a hat like that, and I saw that hat through the windshield, I mean, my old heart began beating faster, and I was scared, because here was a hat that had some gold braid on it. And that was awesome-looking. Now, that derived from an ancient pagan practice way back years and years ago where men thought they looked better. First of all, they did it as an expediency to hunt game. They crawled inside a skin of a leopard or a fox or a wolf or a lion. 
And what they would do is they would stick their face in between, you know, where the head was. So it looked like the teeth were up here and the head and the ears were sticking out and the lower jaw here and the skin draped all over them. They're crawling along the ground with their bow and arrow trying to get close enough. Or they're trying to look like, like a buffalo to a buffalo herd, an American Indian or whatever. So the, the American Indians would wear a buffalo headdress. And you've seen pictures of them with the big horns. When a man, like a Viking, they wore horns sticking out of their heads, and the Viking football helmet affects that same thing today. Well, anciently, men wore lion's heads and leopard's heads and wolf's heads on their heads because it made a man look fierce. So, little by little, the military hat or the military cap is an evolution of that ancient practice of men trying to add to their height their impressive stature and their ferocity. So today, a colonel or a general or a major looks really quite pompous and quite important. There was no nation on the earth that managed to affect more of a, of a look of importance or pomposity or fear than the Germans when it came to designing a high-peaked military cap and the military insignia and so on of the Waffen-SS or the, the Hitler Corps, you know, and on and on in the uh, military organizations of the Third Reich. And I see that same thing happening in religious organizations. Now, there are those who are, we don't in this church wear robes, but there are those who wear robes, and those robes strike a certain amount of fear and in the minds of other people. In our organization, in the past, ministers could never be caught without a suit or a necktie. I remember one time I was in a very sweaty environment up here at Big Sand at about 15,000 people in that great big low-ceiling auditorium with no air conditioning on a summer day. And 15,000 people can put out a lot of BTUs at heat. And it was hot and humid, and that's East Texas, only about 30 miles north of here. And I, I bet it was just about like I had shattered glass when I walked up to the podium and took off my jacket and took off my tie and loosened my collar and said, Would all of you men please stand up? And would every one of you take your jacket off? Boy, I mean, I got a round of applause. People were very, very, you know, grateful to be able to do that. But I think I'm not sure but what some people kind of resented it because there became a kind of a uniform code that we always had to wear the strictest kind of garb, and mostly, of course, on the Sabbath, dark. Uh, it wasn't too good to show up on the Sabbath with a light gray jacket or just a sports blazer or a jacket. It would be nice to have a dark suit, and that was affected in the worldwide church, and I think still is to a great degree. So that was their affectation of grandeur and distinction. Another is, and I won't go into this because we've mentioned it already, their shocking hypocrisy, Matthew 23, 14, 27, and sequential verses. Another was their standing on inconsiderable points while they neglected such as were of consequence, preferring ceremonial rites to justice and charity. Matthew 23:24. The display, this is number nine, which they affected even in works of religion, and that has been mentioned in verse five of this chapter. The tenth point is their pride and self-gratulation as assuredly and before others as religious men. Next was their regard to tradition. Next was they regard to the act rather than the motive as being important. Next, number 12, they were given to fasts, prayers, washings, payings of tithes and alms, and so on. Number 13, exhibiting themselves to the people in order to gain their favor as self-denying holy men, zealous for God and the law, as a kind of Jewish Stoics. Everyone assumes that the ministry works harder than anybody else that they work 16 hours a day, 
that they deny themselves, that they are Stoics, that they are like mystics, that they're just different people, or not like you are. While in reality, many scriptures to prove this, they were fond of the pleasures of sense and were men of lax morals. Matthew 5.20, Matthew 15.4 and 8, Matthew 23.3, 14, and 25, and John 8 and verse 7. And this, of course, is from all of history as well as the Bible. At an early period, they determined in the Sanhedrin to withstand and destroy Jesus, instigated doubtless by the boldness with which he taught the necessity of personal righteousness and pure worship. It's interesting that he calls the Pharisees, and I quote, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And it's also interesting that when he was in the temple one day, and the Pharisees brought him a woman who was taken in the very act of adultery, he did a very strange thing. Their pecking order is obvious in what happened, but it said that he knelt on the floor. Now, the floor would have been dusty, even though a finely polished marble, and if you've ever seen a bank floor, a finely polished marble, you know that you could just take your finger and you could write letters on it like the back of a windshield of a dirty car and see it very, very clearly. Well, he stooped and began to write with his finger. And it said, from the least, or, or from the greatest to the least, or the eldest to the youngest, they all took a look. So apparently, they all filed by, and I've covered that in my book, uh, Peter's Story, and I think that exactly what is there is just about what had to take place. I think he wrote some names. I think he connected some names together. I think he wrote, you know, like Judas and Mary and uh, Joseph and uh, uh, Penelope or whatever. I think he, he wrote some names down there. Well, I think he wrote. I can't prove it. I'm just saying I think that's what he did. And it said from the greatest to the least, they took a look and just flipped a robe around her shoulder and marched out. They never said a word. Whatever it was that he wrote, those Pharisees just took one shame-faced look at it and were so embarrassed they simply left the temple. Now that's fascinating to me, that that was a part of Pharisaical religion. There are some very interesting things I must get into this tape before it's complete. It thus appears that the Pharisees were in general a powerful religious party or rather the predominant influence in the Jewish state who aspired to the control of the civil and religious institutions. They affected popularity among the people, exerted influence in councils of kings, queens, and people of high rank, were the recognized teachers and guides of the national mind, proud of their orthodoxy, pluming themselves on their superior sanctity, practicing austerities outwardly but inwardly indulging their passions and descending to unworthy and shameful acts and with all of narrow spirit, contracted views, seeking rather their own aggrandizement than the public good, of which they use the name merely as a pretext and a cover. A little later on, thus arbitrariness and ingenuity instead of reason and solidity were applied to morals and to a party which assumed and by its nature must assume dominion over the minds of men, the temptation was often too great to accommodate their principles to the passions of men and to use for the same pur purpose their casuistry, dependent on authority which so easily lent itself to this end. The persecutions of Antiochus Epiphanes, very important point. What did persecutions do to a group like that? What did a time of terrible controversy and conflict with 
military or civil power due to them. The persecutions and oppositions of Antiochus and the Sadducees bounded them only the more to their old precepts and methods of teachings and filled them with an ever-living opposition to every Gentile doctrine and custom. They considered themselves the more as the only genuine and pure Israelitish teachers of religion. They preserved the reverence for the holy books. They could not fail to gain with the people a reputation for superior holiness. The greater this reputation was, the greater the temptation to hypocrisy. The more rigorous were their principles, the more difficult was it to act entirely or to live entirely up to them. And the easier they were led to observe that with a holy appearance they could attain the power of imposing on the mass of the people and ruling over them. It doesn't take too many years. And let me tell you, I have been there. I have known, I have tasted, I have sampled, I have lived, I have seen what deference, what respect, what aplomb, people calling you mister, people thinking you're great, people thinking you occupy a high station can do to you. It can corrupt you. It can make you very careless of your attitude toward those people. It is corrupting. You can become, literally, drunk with power. There are individuals in positions like that today who are taking those first timid steps along corridors of power that I took in 1955. They've got some very bitter lessons to learn. Very, very bitter indeed. I'm reminded of the Rudyard Kipling poem that says in a recessional, Lest drunk with power we loose wild tongues that have not thee in awe. And it does make me realize that the Pharisees are alive and well in our world today. That even as they did not suddenly spring on a world full-blown during the time of Jesus Christ, but took decades and perhaps centuries to develop, and even as they began in all sincerity, and even as though in their number at that day were men like Gamaliel and Nicodemus, good men who had not been corrupted by the hierarchy, so today... Any religious organization, including this one if it isn't careful, as it begins to grow, could begin to make the same mistakes. We must not make those mistakes. We must not repeat the errors of the past. We are not a church of Pharisees. We are a church of God, and we respect the rights and privileges of each individual. 